May the Lord give us ears to hear his word this morning. Thank you. We're going to turn in God's word to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. And we're coming to the chapter 3 today. Could I welcome you all to the Lord's house. Thank you all for coming and joining with us today. On a very humid day. We can't do anything about the weather, uh, but we're glad that you're here with us in the uh, house of the Lord. After the preaching of God's word this morning, we'll be meeting around the Lord's table to remember the Lord in his own appointed way. And if you're saved and walking with the Lord, then do wait with us for that time around the Lord's table. We still have plenty of invitations for the Easter meetings coming up, that'll be Good Friday morning and then the Saturday and the Lord's Day, Good Friday and the Saturday at 10. And uh, those are here at the the door. Uh, Do take those and invite others to come with you. And we pray that uh, that will be a special time that the Lord will minister to hearts over that weekend. All of the other announcements are in the church bulletin. When we started looking at the book of Romans, I said we would look at the first couple of chapters and go back to the Gospel of Luke, Uh, but uh, I felt that we needed to move into chapter 3 on account of the link that we have between chapter 2 and 3, although I suppose it's going to be hard to find a a dividing point, but in the next few weeks we'll go back to the Gospel of Luke again. But this morning I want us to look at the first eight verses of this chapter, perhaps a portion that isn't much considered, and yet it is an important introduction to what follows, where Romans chapter 3 declares to us the universality of sin and the depravity of sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings. And mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness command the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory... Why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, sorry, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. We'll seek the Lord's face together in prayer. We need the Lord's help as we come and Consider these words together, and we each need the Lord's help. Certainly I, as the preacher, need the Lord's help as we come and look at these words. Let us each pray. 
Our gracious Father, we thank Thee for Thy presence and help already here in the Lord's house today. We ask, dear Lord, as we come now and meditate upon these words that we have read, that the help of God will be given. We pray that Thou wilt minister to each one of our hearts. And, O Lord, we pray that we will be built up through the living word. For those among us who are unconverted, for those who are careless concerning their souls, O Lord, we pray that these solemn words will be sealed to their hearts. You might draw lost ones to yourself. We pray these things in our Lord's great name. Amen. Amen. When the Lord called Ezekiel to be a prophet, the Lord did not guarantee to Ezekiel that multitudes would heed and follow his ministry. In fact, God warned him of the stubbornness that there would be in the hearts of those that would hear. Ezekiel 3 verse 7, The house of Israel will not hearken unto thee. For they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Impudent and hard-hearted. Stubborn and obstinate. Many years later as Paul was writing to the church at Rome. Paul was very aware that there were still many among the Jews who were obstinate and hard-hearted. He knew that the matters that he had touched on, especially in the latter part of Romans chapter 2, would be opposed by many of these unbelieving Jews. And so in the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3, Paul is answering some objections. Why does he raise these questions? Why does he raise these objections? I think the most obvious answer is because he has heard them all before. As he has preached here and there concerning some of these great themes set forth in Romans chapter 2, he has heard the type of objections that he now takes and addresses in the first eight verses of this chapter. He anticipates them and he addresses them very briefly but very pointedly. Now these questions are unreasonable. They are based on foolish logic. And so while those that would be asking these questions would say... This is the logical conclusion of your teaching, Paul. And Paul would reply, and you might describe it as logic, but it's unreasonable logic. Sinful, fleshly reasoning. Whenever someone declares the truth of God, they can expect to be faced with foolish logic. Yeah, even among those who profess the Lord's name, 
There are those that will engage in the type of unreasonable logic that Paul is addressing here. Many a Reformed preacher, when he has spoken on the sovereignty of God, when he has spoken on the subject of election, as clearly set forth in the Word of God, there will be those that oppose him. There will be those that say and charge him with being a hindrance to evangelism. There are those who will charge him with not believing that God answers prayer. Of course, the preacher said none of those things. It's a complete distortion of the truths that he was setting forth. I listened to a preacher recently, and he was speaking of how he had preached at a a conference. And at that conference, he preached a sermon on the justice, the judgment of God. And there were three pastors afterwards come up and they said to him, you're very unbalanced. Because in that sermon on the justice of God, you never once mentioned the love of God. And the preacher said to him, said to the three men, well, were you here last night? They said, yes. And he said, how come last night you didn't come and charge me with being imbalanced when I preached solely in the love of God and didn't mention his justice? The preacher wisely said to the three men, I think you three are those that are imbalanced. You see, they had taken his words, but they were charging him falsely. And so it is here then in Romans chapter 3, Paul anticipates there will be those that take his words and they charge him falsely. Now in this passage, Paul is repeatedly using words from three word groups in Greek. So there are words here about believing, faith, and faithfulness. So words about believing. Then there are words about righteousness. And then thirdly, words about justice. Believing righteousness and justice. And remember, justice is really an outworking of righteousness. God is just because he is righteous. And Paul really then is bringing two things to our attention about God. God is faithful. And God is just. And you'll see that those two themes as we go through these verses together. Remember John brought those two themes together when he spoke about God. 1 John 1 verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful and just to forgive. The emphasis in these words before us is God is faithful and just. And therefore he will condemn those that will not confess their sins. He will condemn those who refuse to repent and turn unto the Lord for mercy. And so then I want us to look at God's faithfulness and justice confirmed. God's faithfulness and justice confirmed. I want to see first of all that God is faithful and just in giving us his word. 
God is faithful and just in giving us his word. The first series of questions that Paul is dealing with are found in verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Really their question is this. You said in chapter 1 that the heathen are without excuse. There's a witness to them in creation. And the Jew would say, we agree. But then you say that we Jews are not really Jews. You say that without believing in Jesus Christ, our circumcision is meaningless. And you imply, and of course Paul was implying, that we the Jews then will be judged also. Just as the Gentiles, the heathen, will be judged. And so their question then is this. Does that mean we, the Jews, have no advantage over the heathen? If they are judged and we will be judged, then what's the benefit in us even having been circumcised? Is there any advantage at all? And perhaps some might have expected that Paul would say no. That because all are sinners, that none have an advantage over another. But Paul says, actually... You do have an advantage. Verse 2. Much more every way. Chiefly. The word chiefly there. Is a Greek word for first. Much every way. First of all. And he, he doesn't give us a second and a third. Not that there isn't a second or a third. But the first is so great. That. All of the others we could sort of summarize together. But there is this great chief advantage, much more every way chiefly, because that unto them, unto the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. And Paul is saying, you Jews have a great advantage. You have been given the Bible. The Jews in the day of Paul had the Old Testament. And they therefore were at a great advantage over those that had no access to any portion of the word of God. And so the heathen perished without a Bible. The Jews were perishing with a Bible. Yet they could not say we have no advantage over the heathen. Because they had this distinct advantage of having the Bible. So yes it's true. That the heathen were without excuse. How much more. Those that have God's special revelation. Those that have received the written word of God. How much more. You are. Without excuse. Now the words before us have a broader application. Than to this. Limited application to the Jews in Paul's day. So undoubtedly, the words very pointedly apply to the Jews in Paul's day and equally to the Jews still today. But we could say that these words apply to all of the religious through what we might call Christendom today. So anyone that has any access to the Bible 
They have an advantage over those that do not. They have a privilege, and with that privilege then comes responsibility, but they have a privilege greater than those that have not been exposed to the Word of God. As you think of it this way, someone who sits in a church that we would associate with the apostasy, they have a greater advantage than the one that has never darkened the door of such a place or heard anything of the Word of God. Now it's true when they go to such a place, the sermon may be full of falsehood, if there is even a sermon. But in all likelihood, they hear something of the Bible being read. There may even be the the singing of hymns. And in those hymns are truths from the Word of God. I've often thought of this while watching some of those events of the royal family in the Church of England. And while the sermon may be worse than useless, there was in those meetings the reading of God's Word. And some some of those great old hymns that were sung, the gospel was presented. That's not to say I support going to a place like that. But what I'm saying is this, that those people do have an advantage over those that have never heard, that have never been exposed to anything of the truth of God. Paul says, much every way, chiefly. And he draws out two truths in particular about the Word of God to impress this upon us. God's Word is inspired. Uh, That does not mean merely that the writer's got some nice ideas in their head from things that they had witnessed and seen in nature or somewhere else. But we say inspired in the biblical sense, breathed out by God. All scripture is God breathed. And that's brought out in these words, in that word, oracle. Unto them are committed the oracles of God. That's a word that brings us right back into the Old Testament where the prophet, he would bring the oracle And it means that the prophet wasn't just dreaming up a message, as the false prophet did, but he was bringing the very word of God. And so when the prophet would preach, he would say, Thus saith the Lord, because it was so. Thus saith the Lord. And so then, as God's word was recorded, God's Word was the oracles of God. God's Word is the oracles of God. It's thus saith the Lord. All Scripture is God-breathed. Yes, there were men that penned the words, that wrote them down. But those men, they were carried along by the Holy Ghost. It wasn't their words. It wasn't even just their ideas. Yes, in a most wonderful way, their personality was communicated. But as they recorded, they recorded the very words of God, the oracles of God. Now, coming back to the Jew then. The Jews in Paul's day would go to the synagogue. 
And it's true that when they would go to the synagogue, they would hear a lot of what we call the oral law. The oral law. The oral law was various rules that the Jews had added to the Bible. So they were not biblical, they were extra biblical. But at times the Jews placed them on a higher level than the scripture themselves. And so when they would go to the synagogue, they might hear a lot of these man-made rules. Also, when they went to the synagogue, they might hear explanations of portions of Scripture to try and undermine their application. So perhaps in the synagogue they would hear that commandment, Honor thy father and thy mother. But then the preacher would say, But you have to remember this teaching, Corbin. Remember how the Lord addressed this in the New Testament. Where some had money that rightfully they ought to have given to their parents, their elderly parents, to sustain them. Honor thy father and thy mother. But these people would take that. And in order to deprive their parents, they would bring it to the Lord's house and say, it's Corbin, it's a gift to the Lord's work. To get out of their duty toward their parents. It was wrong. So there was a lot in the synagogue that was false. And yet we have to ask the question, was there any advantage in all in being there? Well, the advantage was that when they would would go to the synagogue, those scrolls of the Old Testament were opened and read. So there might have been a lot of other falsehood, but God's word was inspired. And in spite of the preacher committed to the people that day in the synagogue were the oracles of God. They were without excuse. Now how much more than today those that come to a meeting like this where no effort is made to explain away the word of God. Rather we desire the word of God to come with its authority. So you have the word of God given to you Read in your hearing. Preached, I trust, faithfully in your hearing. If these Jews were without excuse, if these Jews had an advantage, how much more you do? So there's this truth of inspiration set forth here. There's also the truth of the preservation of Scripture because it says much more, sorry, in verse 2, much every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. That word committed could mean or be translated and thrusted. Remember how I said that a lot of these words come from a family of words meaning faith. And actually this is true here as well. Faithfully were committed the oracles of God or We could say committed into their faith in the sense that we would say today committed into their trust. And so we have that word in English, entrusted. Commit into the trust of. That's the idea here. So what Paul is saying is this. That in the Old Testament, God gave the very words to those men as they wrote. So, for example, to Jeremiah, we're given the very words to record. He did record. 
that book was inspired. But what value to that is what, what value is there in that in us today if that book was not actually preserved and faithfully preserved? Paul is saying it has been preserved. It has been preserved. The, the Old Testament books were being preserved because they were actually entrusted into the hand of the Jews to preserve them. Entrusted here is the idea of put into their care. How was it put into their care that they were to copy the Scriptures? And by copying, God's Word was preserved. And so too we have the New Testament books, which Peter confirms are inspired. He said that the books of Paul were inspired and the other writings, they are Scripture. And so the New Testament is inspired. And the New Testament has also been preserved. We don't have the original copies. How do we know then that God's word today is accurate? Because it was copied. And copies were made of those copies. Very careful copying was performed. And as one copy was examined against another. And against another and another. We can see that God has faithfully preserved his word. And yes, at times, there were errors in copying. If I gave everyone here today a chapter to copy out of the Bible, and then brought all the manuscripts back, there would be slight differences. Some of you might drop off a letter here and there. You might put two those in, or you might drop a the here and there. But as I examine all the copies... I can come to an understanding of what you all were copying from. By this means then, God's word has been preserved. Our confession speaks of the Old and New Testament being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages and therefore authentical. Many people today speak of the importance of inspiration, and that is important. But inspiration is really of no value today without preservation. We have to be sure that the scriptures have been faithfully preserved. And I believe they have, and this is huge implications that I can't go into today, but I personally believe that if the translators do not believe in preservation then that will be reflected in their translation we are to use translations of God's word that believe in preservation so God has been faithful then in preserving his word in giving it and preserving it God is just God's justice has not been compromised In giving his word, rather it's set forth in it. God is faithful and just in giving his word. I want to move on then secondly and see that God is faithful and just to his covenant. Because we come then to this next set of questions. Verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? And the faith of God here is the faithfulness of God. 
So what if there are some that won't believe? Will their unbelief make God's faithfulness null and void? That's the objection that Paul is going to address then and deal with in the verse 4. And what's really in view here is then that God has dealt with his people covenantally. God chose the nation of Israel as a nation. And I think the argument then is something like this. God has chosen a people. The physical seed of Abraham. And so those in Paul's day would say, we are Jews, we are the physical seed of Abraham. And they would then, they would then say, therefore, God must not punish us. So God has chosen the Jews. We are Jews. Therefore, God must not punish us. This was their syllogism. But it was based on a false premise. They were drawing something about the covenant of God that the Old Testament had actually never taught. And really what they were saying then was this. That anybody that can claim we are the physical seed of Abraham... They are saved from the justice of God. That they have a birthright to heaven on account of their birth. And they're saying then God must be faithful to what we have concluded about the covenant. But as I've said, God's word had never said this. Romans 9, 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. If you remember right back, before Isaac was born, there was another. Ishmael. Ishmael was the physical seed of Abraham. Ishmael even had the sign of the covenant. But I'm quite sure there was no Jew in the day of Paul that was saying, Ishmael had a pass to heaven. They repudiated that idea. You have to have the reality. Ishmael didn't have the reality. Nor did so many of the nor did any of the unbelieving Jews in the day of Paul. They had the mark, they had the sign. But they didn't have the reality. Flavel, the great Puritan, spoke of the vain hopes. Vain hopes that some would have that because Abraham's blood runs in their veins. That though they don't have Abraham's faith and obedience. That all would be well. Paul was really saying then. If you don't have Abraham's faith in your hearts. Doesn't matter if you have his blood running in your veins. We're coming then to this question can God be faithful to his covenant if he does not save every Jew? And the answer is absolutely yes, because God never covenanted to save everyone that was naturally born a Jew. But God is faithful. 
to that which he has covenanted. And so if you notice with me in verse 4, it says, God forbid. And the words are translated in this way, God forbid, to emphasize that this is certainly not the case that God is unfaithful or that God's faithfulness is without effect. Certainly not. God forbid. Yea, let God be true, verse 4, and every man a liar. As it is written, and so he's quoting from the Old Testament, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings. And here is talking about God being justified, and that shows us that the word justified is this declarative meaning in the book of Romans, that thou might be declared as just, and mightest overcome when thou art judged, or as we'll see in a moment, when you go to the law. God is just. God is righteous. God is faithful. And Scripture everywhere confirms the great faithfulness of God. Exodus 34 verse 6. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Truth. The truthfulness of God is very closely tied with the faithfulness of God. God is true to himself. God is faithful to himself. Remember how even Balaam said, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. Man is unfaithful. Man is a liar. But God is true. God is faithful. God's word is his bond. And therefore, dear believer, today we can stand upon the word of God. Every word of it. God's word is true. Yea, and even at times when it would seem that that stand is a lonely stand. When everyone else is saying something different than what the Word of God says, their unbelief does not make the faithfulness of God null and void. The ungodly crowd then today, with all of their modern philosophies that question the truth and the morality of God's Word, does their unbelief invalidate the faithfulness of God? Absolutely not. Let God be true. And every man a liar. May we have that fresh determination to stand for God. I want to see then thirdly and finally that God is faithful and just in condemning sinners. God is faithful and just in condemning sinners. If we put it another way, when God condemns sinners, he is not unfaithful. He is not unjust. And so I just mentioned a few moments ago there that those words at the end of verse 4, where it says, when thou art judged, it does of the idea, or it can bear out the idea, go to the law. The same words are translated in that way in 1 Corinthians 6. 
verses 1 and 6. Uh, the Lord is the great judge. He will go to the law. And so in verse 5 then, if our unrighteousness command the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? And then, parentheses, Paul says, I speak as a man. And he's really saying, it's almost horrific for me to record the very words that I'm recording here. This is not godly reasoning at all. It's fleshly reasoning. I speak as a man. Now, what is the argument here? The argument is God is righteous. The sinner is unrighteous. When God in His righteousness deals with the unrighteousness of the sinner, God has been glorified. God's righteousness is set forth. So when God deals with the sinner, He is doing what is right. And why we often think of that great truth that God's righteousness, God is, God's righteousness is shown in conversion and in His mercy towards sinners. God, God is glorified in conversion. God is glorified in saving sinners. That is right. But God is also glorified in justice. God is always glorified. He never loses glory. And the reasoning then of these unbelieving Jews is this. That if our sin actually results in God being glorified, how can God judge us for our sin? So, if it's my unrighteousness that is being condemned by a righteous God and God's righteousness is being set forth, how can God even judge me for my unrighteousness? I, I trust you can see the wickedness of that logic. How does Paul answer it? In verse 6, God forbid, and so we have this great statement again, certainly not, in no way, God forbid. For how then shall God judge the world? And Paul really is saying, hold on a moment. A moment or two ago you were trying to argue that the Jews should have some advantage over the Gentiles. And I have allowed you that. But now you're actually the one that's saying they should all be the same. Because Paul is saying, would you as a Jew ever argue? That God should deal with a Gentile and say to them, Well, your unrighteousness would show forth my righteousness, so I can't judge you. The Jew would never say that. The Jew would never give any allowance for a Gentile. But by their reasoning, all men should be let off scot-free. Verse 7, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, 
Why yet am I judged? Why am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we slander, as we be slanderously reported. And as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. And so there were some that had so twisted the teaching of Paul. And there are some today that continue to twist the teaching of Paul. But there are some that so twisted the teaching of Paul. And they said, Paul is really saying, let's do evil that good will come. Go on in your unrighteousness that God's righteousness will be set forth. Paul had never said that at all. This claim, let us do evil that good way good may come is really the idea the end justifies the means and Paul is saying I have never taught that that's your words that's what you're trying to argue but I have never argued it I don't have time to go into it today but that is the great principle behind the Jesuit movement I say great in the sense that they make it their chief principle, not that it's a good one, it's a wicked one. The end justifies the means. And down through history, the Jesuit movement then has sought to justify the wickedest of deeds because they've held to this principle, the end justifies the means. But coming back to the context here, Paul is really... Exposing a wicked application of his teaching. And he deals with something very similar in Romans chapter 6. Where in dealing with the subject of grace. He asks the question. Should I sin more. In order that God's grace should be seen more. So can I as a professing Christian just live whatever way I please. And sin as much as I want because. Salvation is by grace, and so it doesn't matter. My sin actually shows more and more that God is gracious. And Paul there again says, God forbid, what a wicked doctrine. If you understood God's grace, you would hate your sin. You would weep over it. If you understood grace, it would never be a license for sin. So they twist God's grace. And here Paul says, you twist the judgment of God. How depraved is human reasoning? And it brings us back to what I said right at the very beginning then. That these words form a very appropriate introduction to the words for all have sinned. There is none that doeth good. There is none righteous, no, not one. How wicked, how depraved is the reasoning of man. How great then is man's need? And you might look at those words and you say, well, I haven't used those arguments. But if you're without Jesus Christ today, you've used some argument. And whatever argument it is, it has been sinful, sinful reasoning. And in some way you have charged God with unfaithfulness and injustice. time that you had a right view of God. God is 
faithful. God is just. But there is hope for you today, dear sinner. Again, as I mentioned earlier, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And today your duty is to repent. Confess your sins. Come to the Lord for mercy. For us as the Lord's people, surely our great takeaway from this passage must be, praise God, our God is faithful. Praise God, our God is just. Unfaithfulness, lies, abound in every hand. I'm sure every one of you in the workplace face that day and daily. Unfaithfulness, even at times, injustice. How can you face it? and every day you can face it because you have a faithful God. He is faithful. He is just. Praise God. He is a God of great mercy that he has ever brought us to himself. That he has ever saved us. That he has ever brought us to Christ's cross. May those truths fill our hearts with rejoicing this day as we come to the Lord's table. We'll bow together, please, in prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank Thee that our God is just. Our God is faithful. We pray that the truth of God then will be sealed to every heart this day. Oh Lord, linger with us in this season at the table if there are those that must go we pray that you'll go with them may your blessing abide upon them throughout this day and at the table we pray that we will be led afresh to Calvary may we be brought to feast upon our Lord there we pray in our Lord's name